From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Andy Thomas, the author of Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence, is here, and for the full two hours... Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. However, there is no live stream tonight. The live stream on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, returns next week. At any time in our history, you'll find significant and seemingly indisputable events occurring, the kind that can change the course of our lives, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Yet, for every one of them, somebody, somewhere, will loudly dispute the official account, doubting that the truth has been told. In today's environment, with trust in authorities at an all-time low, conspiracy theories have found a new currency, and websites and social networking ensure they receive a wider and more rapid spread than ever before. But how do we separate truth from imagination? Was Princess Diana murdered, as many people think, despite all the official denials? Did NASA really go to the moon, when anomalies in the photographic records suggest otherwise? Could 9-11 really have been set up by agencies within the USA itself? Are we living in a world of control, of oppression, of habitual deception? Is this really how things are, or simply human nature, massively distorted through a dark lens? The truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Andy Thomas is one of the UK's best-known authors and lecturers on unexplained mysteries, global cover-ups. He's the author of the acclaimed books, The Truth Agenda, and his latest, the second edition of Conspiracies. Andy Thomas, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, and it's uh, very nice to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. One of the things I like to ask authors who are associated with major publishers and, and have been very successful in this field is, how does one get a book like this published in this environment in 2020? Uh, maybe 10 years ago, it might have been a little easier. I mean, have things changed? Is it harder now? I think that to get a book of some kind out there, you could argue, is uh, easier today. You've got many outlets. Self-publishing is easier. You've got Amazon that will you know, distribute your book online. So all of that on one level is easier. In the field that I work in, we're talking about mysteries and conspiracies and whatever. I think the problem that we now have is that there is such a, a media resistance to this kind of material that now getting a publisher who would be willing to take the risk to go into some of the areas that certainly I talk about. No, I don't think that has got easier. Uh, and I've been very lucky. I mean, I've been in print for, you know, um, a few decades now in one way or the other. So I've kind of got a background there. But, no, I would imagine somebody trying to come into this brand new uh, would certainly struggle to find somebody that would put this stuff out there, which is a great shame. And I think that kind of censorship is one of the areas that, you know, I'm becoming very concerned about. But that said, it is not impossible, and there are avenues, and uh, people should always try uh, and never assume that they won't get anywhere. You're published by Watkins. I'm not overly familiar with Watkins. Was there any sort of resistance or hesitation on their part, or is this an, an area that they really embrace? 
Well, Watkins are very renowned publishers over here for covering more alternative areas. They've been running for a long time. Uh, no, they've been wonderful. Uh, they did uh, so. The, the book that uh, I have just sort of produced now is called Conspiracies, and uh, they did a, an earlier version of that some years ago. But this book is a, is a lot of new material. You know, the world has changed enormously in the last few years, and conspiracies have changed enormously. So um, they've embraced all of that. They've been very good, very supportive. They exist to try to get this kind of material out there. So you know, this is where the hope lies. There are are some outlets still that will have these conversations which I'm very pleased about um, so you know no I, I've had nothing but support uh, and this is important because you know what we're talking about here it's not subversive it's not radical just to cause trouble it, it's trying to get conversations going about things that you know should be discussed because if we don't um, sooner or later we're going to trip up on the consequences of not talking about this so uh, no they've been very good indeed the first edition came out in 2013, I believe, and uh, right. obviously the landscape has changed dramatically. Uh, much of what it has happened that kind of coincides with a lot of pushback from uh, authority and institutions and deplatforming and so forth. But the other thing that's happened alongside that is a great deal of validation. You know, the Snowdens and the, the Julian Assanges and a lot of the stuff that's come out regarding the deep state, which is now, I mean, that, that term is being bandied about in the mainstream media. Talk to me about, uh, you know, these, this parallel track of pushback on the one hand and then validation on the other. Well, I think it's the validation that's led to the pushback. Uh, I think it was becoming very clear that a lot of the things that the conspiracy thinkers have been talking about for a long time, uh, it was becoming obvious they were true, or at least, you know, some of them were true enough that you couldn't just dismiss it all. Uh, and I think, of course, the Internet was a, a big gift to that world to be able to have conversations and gather like-minded people together across the world in the way that we now can. Nobody, I think, had anticipated that occurring. And so that had created a lot of platforms for this kind of stuff to be discussed. And I think then the authorities had long been looking for a way to put the genie back into the bottle, if you like. They didn't quite know what to do. But the biggest gift for them was the advent of so-called fake news. Now, we all know there is some fake news out there, but that is a very subjective thing, of course. And uh, the conspiracy world has long believed that it is the mainstream media, it is the establishment that is putting out the fake news. But what they've managed to do is brand anybody that questions the status quo a purveyor of fake news. And therefore, they've now put in place an infrastructure that allows them to take that down. So, yes, people have been deplatformed. Videos are vanishing off of things like YouTube. And running a search for something today in a mainstream search engine, you'll find certain subjects have vanished completely, or at least you now have to scroll down several pages to find them. And that's where there's been a stroke of genius, if you like, in the world of the establishment. They've found that if they can keep pushing back, pushing back, their hope is that in a few years' time, nobody's even going to be able to find this stuff at all. And that's why those people who are aware that that's going on must not let that happen. You know, the fight back to that has to occur now.
The two poles that exist, those who believe that everything is a conspiracy and and those who believe that nothing is a conspiracy, and you have found a middle ground. That's the way I try to approach it as well. Just talk to me a little bit more about your approach and the methodology behind not only the original version of, of the book, but the new edition. Well, I mean, the first thing we need to say is, and the book makes this very clear and discusses this at some length. When you look back through history, you realize conspiracies do occur. And uh, I mean, it's funny because, yes, I meet people that say, well, I don't believe in conspiracies. And then you say to them, well, what do you think the gunpowder plot was that tried to blow up King James the first in 1605? And then you say, what do you think 9-11 was? And even if you believe that bin Laden carried out 9-11, it's still a conspiracy. So, you know, conspiracy is littered throughout history. Where you then get the differences, though, is who you point the finger at as to who was directly responsible for that conspiracy. And both with the gunpowder plot, some say that was a setup, that actually the Protestant government encouraged this group of Catholics to do this terror attack, or that's what it would have been, so that they could discredit them. And, of course, some believe 9-11 was also a setup to discredit the Middle Eastern world, to create avenues for wars and restrictions on freedom. So this is a pattern you see going throughout history. But to say that there are no conspiracies at all is to me to be blind, because clearly they are. But then to say that everything is a conspiracy is, of course, also potentially going too far. And I think the danger is that we live in an age where clearly we are deceived. Clearly there are agendas coming at us from all sides. And you wind up losing your faith in so many things that... As soon as you hear any news story, you jump to the opposite. You think, ah, that can't be true. Sometimes you might be right. But then the danger is things that might be true or partly true, you dismiss them out of hand. And that then leads to the more extreme arm of conspiracy thinking, which then blinds itself to certain facts. And and I'm always trying, as you said there, to, to find a middle ground with this. Because I totally understand why people don't have any faith at all in what the mainstream tells them. But equally, you need facts, you need evidence to show whether or not a conspiracy might have occurred. Um, To me, what I always try to do is to gather as much evidence as possible and try and not go to the polarities of complete denial or complete belief without evidence. And I would advise anybody looking into this world to look at that evidence. And what the book Conspiracies does, and the original, but very much uh, the new edition, is to look at what are the grounds for believing in these conspiracies. So put the opinion to one side for a moment. What are the grounds? Here they are. And let's look at the credibility of that. And you'll find that certainly with some conspiracies, you know, without any question, there is something here that should be talked about. Andy Thomas, Conspiracies, the Facts, the Theories, the Evidence, and uh, the second edition is uh, now available. We'll tell you how to get the book a little bit later. You offer up three definitions of conspiracy. Which one do you think resonates most, or which one do you think is, is the most accurate? I mean, I point out in the book that obviously, you know, you've got everyday ground level conspiracies occurring all the time. You know, a a criminal attempt to rob a shop is a conspiracy, but that's not really what I'm talking about. So we accept that that goes on. There's corruption in uh, many levels of government, both globally and locally. But the kind of conspiracy that I'm trying to sort of deal with really in conspiracies 
is the one that says there are ruling elites, there are cabals, groups of people who do have enormous influence, who are manipulating the public by deceiving them, by if you like, making them believe in certain things that may not be true and distracting away from the nefarious things that they themselves are getting up to. You know, blaming others for things that go wrong when really it might be them actually causing this. And this is one of the big ones, using the deceptions that they are fostering to control us. You know, the, the public's very easily controlled by fear and by making the public ever more fearful of whatever it might be, crime, terrorism, climate change. You can then use that to get people to give away their freedom. And, of course, there's a balance to be struck here. There are things to be concerned about. There are certain restrictions we all have to accept to a degree. But if that then goes beyond a certain level and it's being based on something that might be a lie, that needs exposure. So the book is trying to look at those areas, really the bigger conspiracies, that, you know, something out there is trying to control us. And it's doing that by being very careful with how information flows, putting out false information, trying to stop you getting the real information. But sometimes it leaks out and sometimes there are clear anomalies in an official story of something that begins to make it look ever more likely that a conspiracy is at work. So really that's what the book's trying to expose and then to say how do we deal with this how should we approach this and of course that's a whole other interesting area one of the types of books on conspiracies that is embraced by the, the mainstream media that does get published readily uh, it's often written by uh, journalists or sociologists or psychologists and the, the aim of the book is to try and climb inside the mind of the conspiracy theorist to find out what makes them tick and I, I find this particularly maddening have you noticed the prevalence of these types of books and their whole their, and their approach Oh, definitely. I mean, you've identified something really important there. Yes, if you go to bookshops, especially, and you just sort of browse around and you look at the conspiracy books, nearly all of them, they set out by giving you the impression that they might be open to the conspiracies that the whole book is about. And then one by one, they try to debunk them normally by omitting all of the real evidence and making you think there is no evidence for them when actually there is but they haven't covered it or as you say making you feel that if you're prone to believing in these things that maybe you're slightly mentally damaged now in conspiracies there's a chapter where i actually look at the psychological sort of traits that the academics say that we must all suffer from if we're going to believe in these things and you list them one by one but then you find you can list almost exactly the same traits which they themselves exhibit you know a closed philosophy where they don't look at other evidence um, a tendency simply not to believe certain things almost everything that they say about the conspiracy world they are guilty of themselves and I mean over here in the UK so that's where I am uh, there's a very good professor called Chris French, very good academic, but he does not believe in conspiracies. And uh, there was once uh, a conference which was designed to discuss the conspiracy mindset. And somebody said to him, yeah, but you've just said that this can't be true because you believe that anybody that believes in these things are slightly damaged, but you're not looking at the evidence. And he came back with the response, we are not here to discuss evidence. <laughs> and that's the problem. If you don't discuss the evidence, you're never going to understand why some people do believe these things. So, 
it's a laziness. It's funny, because again, those same academics, they will often point the finger at conspiracy thinkers and say, well, you're lazy. This is an easy way to look at the world. Then it's all manipulated. But they are lazy because they will not address evidence. And it's very easy just to say that somebody over there is a little bit psychologically damaged. Uh, if you don't then look at the reasons as to why they believe what they believe, and you look, of course, and you often find that actually there's very good grounds. So, yeah, it's the classic. They are as guilty of what they accuse other people of. But, no, you're quite right. The mainstream media uh, doesn't let that one get out there, unfortunately. What is also disturbing, is, and you've touched on this, is the, the lack of intellectual curiosity on the part of journalists. They, I think a, a good journalist should be a conspiracy theorist in much the same way that, let's say, a good homicide detective should be a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, I mean, I think two things have happened here. I think one is that I think the world of journalism, again, it's coming often these days from a kind of a career journalism path. People are trained in certain ways and they are basically sort of corralled into certain areas that are acceptable to discuss. And anything that falls outside of that then gets branded conspiracy theory. And because we're encouraged to hold that in contempt, they won't go near it. Even if there's valid information and evidence there, they won't go near it because they're trying to protect their reputations. So that kind of creates a a sort of a a feedback loop, if you like, where they will only look at certain kinds of evidence and round and round that goes. And they just will never even glance at what is outside of that. So that's one end of it. But the other end of it is that there is evidence that certain journalists have been told not to pursue certain stories. I myself can name you two people that have worked for mainstream news outlets who've said that they were present when big stories were suddenly crushed. The phone rings and you're told you don't run that story and you don't ask questions why. So I do think that people right up the top do sometimes also give orders saying that certain areas should not be investigated. And then in the end, of course, again, if you are a journalist, you want to protect your career. So you don't go near it because you don't want to do anything that might jeopardize that. And so they go down a path of that is a cul-de-sac. Ultimately, it's a path of not looking anything outside this very narrow band that they have declared is real. So, yeah, I think those are the two reasons why that happens. But nonetheless, there are some people that do seem very intelligent, very good writers that you would think, wouldn't you, would be a little bit more willing to be open-minded. But at the end of the day, they're going to put their careers first. The other thing I think that's happened as a result of that and people losing faith in the mainstream media is the birth of the civilian journalist. But that's also fraught with some some complications because... uh, you know, they don't always employ journalistic standards and so forth. Talk to me about that, that paradox. I mean, I think that's a bit of a problem because I know I've heard this very much uh, in the UK media, a lot of criticism from journalists towards people that post on social media or indeed people that put up what they call conspiracy material, which is whether you are not trained, you don't have the filters that we do to truly understand this knowledge. 
And while sometimes I think that could be true, equally, you know, what they are not considering is that maybe somebody with an alternative eye might spot something that they wouldn't, might see an opening that should be discussed. And because, you know, as we've just clarified here, the journalistic world will not even consider certain areas, well, then other people have to. And if that means the other people doing this are not trained journalists, well, so be it. And some people have an innate ability anyway to get to the truth, to get to the debates that we should be having. And um, I don't think that we should just presume, because they are not in the world of official journalism, that they don't have any skills in that area. Absolutely, we need to be aware of people putting stuff around social media, especially, which might just be their own thoughts, might not be true. But if people are actually trying to expose evidence and analyse evidence, you know, I have to say, some of what I've seen in those areas seems just as valid as what I'm reading in the press or seeing on the television which appears to me to be stupidly closed. So that's the problem. So, you know, they always see that, and I recognise that, you know, we are in a world where sometimes there isn't any filtration, but they themselves have shown that their filtration process can take them to a place whereby they stop considering things, and that is not right either. Uh, we're heading into a break shortly, but let's just begin the conversation here and we'll continue it after the break. And that has to do with how you approach sort of the rules of evidence and, and when you're researching, whether it's uh, the death of Princess Diana or, or 9-11, uh, how do you sort of separate wheat from chaff when it comes to, to information? Because I mean, this, this arena is fraught with, with speculation and it's often in the absence of the smoking gun. Yes, I think that's right, although I think sometimes when there are smoking guns, uh, the authorities, uh, you know, put a lot of energy into making sure that they uh, can never be proved, but you can almost get there, but they're clever. So, how do you get to the evidence? I mean... There's an earlier book of mine, which is well known, called The Truth Agenda. And the, the method of The Truth Agenda is whereby you stack up levels of evidence. So take something like 9-11. Okay, so you stack up the things that the official story says and whether it makes sense. If something doesn't make sense and it's clearly anomalous, you take that out of the pile. And equally, you stack up the other evidence that the official story does not look at and you do the same and you see what's clearly not relevant what is unsolved, what is clearly relevant. And if at the other end of that process, and it does take diligence, it takes a lot of cross-referencing, a lot of reading, and a lot of discernment, you can't just believe anything you hear first off, you've got to go and find out the grounds for why that might be true. If, though, at the end of that process, you've got one pile higher than the other, I think that even if you can't get to the absolute smoking gun, you can certainly demonstrate a high level of probability in one direction or another. Pardon the interruption. I'm going to jump in here. We'll pick this up on the other side. Andy Thomas, the author of Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. yourself in. You're about to leave everything you thought you knew behind. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. And the book is Conspiracies, the Facts, the Theories, 
the evidence, the second edition now available to uh, book buyers. We were talking about the evidence, rules of, ev- of evidence, and I, th- I thought maybe we could jump into a specific case. My wife and I have been, uh, we just started watching The Crown. We're a little late to the dance. We've been watching it on Netflix, and, and that got me thinking in anticipation of speaking with you about you know all of the intrigue around the royal family and so forth, which leads us into a discussion of Princess Diana. And, um, you know, there's been, I, I think, at least two official inquiries. And uh, I, I don't know that, that we're any closer to the truth. Let's talk about some of the evidence revolving around her death. And one of the, th- the commonalities I find with many conspiracies is uh, video cameras, security cameras that suddenly aren't working. <laughs> we, we recently experienced that with the Jeffrey Epstein case. But true or false, that the, there were there were a multitude of security cameras inside the Elma Tunnel that s- suspiciously weren't working the night of Princess Diana's death. Is that true? Uh, well, look at it this way: the French authorities say it is true. So yes, they say that their, for whatever reason, their CCTV was down that night for maintenance. But um, no. So if they did have any footage from the tunnel uh well we've never seen it they say it does not exist so you can be very sure you will never see that so yes uh, i'm afraid that is a, a truth or at least you know the reality is that footage is not in circulation and i suspect never will be another interesting piece of whether it was rumor whether it was ever validated was the blood sample from the limo driver Henri paul i've heard and i've read that uh, there was a mix-up in the lab and that the uh, the blood sample that was sort of officially cited as proof that he was drunker than a skunk was somehow mixed up and that it might have been replaced with a homeless person, these sorts of things. What can you tell me about that specific uh, piece of the puzzle? Yes, so that again is true. Now, even the authorities accept that they did accidentally, they say, mix up the blood sample with somebody else. So the, the blood sample um, tests, if you like, that are not reliable and cannot be looked at as any definite evidence. However, what the authorities say is what they then did was look, they did further tests on the eye gel fluid from the eye of Henri Paul, which apparently is a good way of also telling whether alcohol is in somebody's system. And they say that confirmed that he was indeed very drunk. But here's the big problem. Not a single witness... Not a single piece of CCTV within the hotel which shows him walking around, uh, shows him looking in any way drunk. Nobody has said that he was drunk. His behavior seemed to be completely normal. He'd had a couple of drinks at the bar, but no more than he normally would. This man was a professional driver. Not Diana's general driver, that is true, but not a man that would be drunk on duty. And the other problem we have is that from the tests that we do know, or at least we are told are reliable, if he was as intoxicated as we are told he was, he shouldn't have been able to have even got out of bed that day, let alone get behind the wheel of a car and walk around looking normal. So these are very serious anomalies. And something else to be considered is that Henri Paul's uh, family, now in the run-up to the verdict of the inquest, which basically blamed him entirely for it, um, they were told he would not be to blame, that actually he was going to be exonerated. But then, mysteriously, when the inquest did come out, and it did blame him, everything had changed. 
and they were never given an explanation for that. So it almost looks as if somebody did toy with the idea of not blaming a drunk driver, but then realised, yeah, but then what are we going to blame? It's easier to blame him. That sounds credible. So they left it all with him. But no, there, there are many serious anomalies. And the whole Princess Diana case... Now, that's one of these things where if you just ask a basic question, which is, was she assassinated in a staged car crash? You can't quite give a straight answer to that. But if you ask a different question and you say, is there something suspicious about the way she died and the way the evidence has been dealt with? then you can say a definite yes. And if you can say yes to that, then, of course, we need to consider that we've not been told the whole truth. And again, it goes back to that truth agenda stacking. You stack up what makes sense about the Princess Diana story, and you stack up what doesn't. And what doesn't make sense, it's a very tall pile. And that means, therefore, we cannot rule out, of course, some of the conspiracy theories. Well, let's see if we can add to the pile. The... uh the vehicle uh, in which she died, was that replaced last minute uh, and, in fact, had no seat belts in the back seat? Uh, no, that is unclear. Again, this is something we're not quite sure about. But as far as we're aware, it did have seat belts in it, although not everybody in there was wearing a seat belt. Interestingly, the uh, the bodyguard, who's never gone on record, he says he doesn't remember it, uh, Trevor Reese, who's the only one that survived, now, he did put his belt on, but interestingly, bodyguards aren't meant to ever put their seatbelts on. And yet we're told that he went against protocol, he did put his belt on, and thus survived Diana, Dodie, the driver didn't. So there's a lot of uncertainty about that. But we should also remember, in terms of the vehicle itself, is that we know that in the tunnel... There was a collision at some point, either during the manoeuvre, if you want to call it that, that destroyed the car, or just before it, where a white Fiat hit that Mercedes. Now, we know this because it left its paint on the body of the Mercedes and then sped away. That's, of course, what would be very useful to see on the CCTV. Maybe we would have found out where it went. Um, because they didn't have that footage, the authorities said, well, they couldn't trace the car. But then Mohammed El-Fayed, who used to own Harrods in London, and yes. whose son Dodi had just died in this crash. Now, he was not happy with that at all. And being a man of some means, hired his own private detectives. And they tracked down an individual called James Andanson, who did own a white Fiat. And they thought that it might have been him. Now, Andanson said that it wasn't. He said, as you might, I suppose, that he wasn't there that night. But then, shortly after being exposed, he was then found dead in another car, which had been set fire to seemingly from the outside. The keys thrown away. There was a hole in the skull. It looked like he'd actually been decapitated at some point before the fire in the car started. And yet the French authorities ruled that one a suicide. Now, if that's a suicide, it's a very clever <laughs> one. But this is what we're expected to believe. And nobody, when it came to the British inquest, nobody thought that even deserved discussion. So to my knowledge, that was never even raised at the inquest. And that's the clever thing. You have an inquest, presumably to get to the bottom of something. But often, 
what an official inquest will do is, of course, admit omit all the uh, important evidence that might show there was a conspiracy and thus you get the verdict that you want all along by just omitting the important evidence and certainly that does seem to be the case with Diana who as we know remember she had believed there was a plot to kill her we've got her letters to Paul Burrell her butler she also has said the same to her solicitor Lord Mishcon she said look there is a plot to kill me um, so you've got that aspect. Why did she believe that? People try to say, well, she was paranoid. She was a bit over emotional. And yet, on the other hand, did she know something that we didn't? So, you know, that's a whole other angle to it. And then very strange things, like on the night of the crash, she was taken to the hospital in Paris and the French doctors expected her to survive. Now, there is a story, and I cannot 100% verify it, but that in the middle of the night, the English doctors arrived and took over and said to the French staff, thanks very much, you know, we'll take over now. The French thought that Diana, though badly injured, had been made comfortable and would survive. But then when the English doctors took over, soon after they announced that Diana had died, and a lot of the French staff there thought that was strange. And uh, it is said that one of them was going to write a book about what he then witnessed. But uh, having announced this, he then died in a strange car crash shortly afterwards. So if that story is true, which some say that it is, uh, obviously that, that adds a whole other layer of intrigue to this. So the whole Diana thing is very, very peculiar. Uh, and I mean we should remember that before she died because she had split up with Charles and was now giving these rather dark sort of interviews threatening to reveal the truth about the dark forces quote running the country and the royal family you know she could well have been making a lot of enemies and she was also um, going out at that stage with Dodi Al-Fayed whose mother is Samira Koshogi of the Koshogi arms dealing family now Maybe they didn't want a peace nick at the table because she was very successfully campaigning against landmines at that time. Indeed. I'm, I'm going to jump in here, Andy. We'll take another time out, come back and pick up on that thread and tug on it when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Right here, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Andy, before the break, we were talking about Princess Diana's death, and you were talking about her activism in the anti-landmines in Angola and places like that, and uh, her potential, I guess, mother-in-law was uh, part of the Khashoggi family, who are huge arms dealers. So, are you suggesting that maybe she was targeted from the Fayed side rather than the, the Windsor side? Well, I am not saying anything, but these are the theories that are out there, and, and I list it in the book as something that should be considered. So, yes, you've got, in a way, you've got people queuing up, wanting to get rid of Diana. I mean, remember, Mohammed al-Fayed famously blamed the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. So he said that he gave the orders. Now, again, that cannot be proven. But it's worth noting that in Diana's letters to Paul Burrell, she states categorically that she thought Prince Charles was behind the plot to kill her. 
She states that in one of the letters. And she states that the reason she thought Charles would want her dead was because he wanted to marry not Camilla Parker Bowles, as she was then, but Tiggy Leg Book. Now, Tiggy Leg Book had been nanny to William and Harry when they were young. And Diana believed that she had been having an affair with Charles. So that was actually Diana's belief that, yes, Camilla was on the scene, but she thought, as she states in the letter, that Camilla was a decoy, quote, that's what she thought. And, I mean, there's weird things around Camilla, because shortly before Diana had her crash, Camilla had a car crash. Now, hardly anybody remembers this now. No, not aware of that. You look look up the original newspaper reports, and you can just about still find this in the archive. Camilla had a car crash in the country lanes not far from her home, and she scrambled out of the vehicle after she went into a ditch and managed to escape, and she fled across the fields, which you're not meant to do at a crash scene, of course. Um, one of the reasons she gave was that she feared that perhaps somebody might be trying to kill her. Now, some have speculated, was there actually a plot to get rid of Camilla first? Uh, to get somebody out of this horrible tangle of Camilla, Tiggy, Charles and Diana, and having failed with Camilla, thought, well, it's going to look too obvious if we try again. I know, let's get rid of Diana, because a lot of people wanted, it would seem, to get rid of Diana at this point. So that's one theory, is that that in itself was an attempt just to take somebody out of this. Now, presumably this didn't go the way that uh, Charles would have wanted if Diana is correct that he did want her dead and of course he did wind up marrying Camilla this is where it's very very difficult to absolutely come up with a solution because of course others say well maybe Diana was pregnant with Dodie's baby now that's denied the official reports deny that they said they tested and she wasn't but of course that is something that some people do believe maybe some say the royal family didn't want a Muslim bloodline entering in if you like um, so you've got all of that aspect there I mean, the only thing I would say to that is that, I mean, Diana had been going out previously uh, with uh, Asnat Khan, who was another Muslim, a doctor, and nobody had seemed to worry about that influence there. But the theory says that uh, with Dodie, this was different for some reason. So, you know, these are all the things that need to be considered. And the rush to embalm. Yes, I mean, there were strange things about the way that they did that. Nobody really had much sight of the body. Uh, I mean, that is something which occurs in a number of famous deaths, of course. So, yes, here we are. We're left basically knowing that we've not been told the whole truth. But that's a classic conspiracy area. Do you then say that you can absolutely prove that the car crash was in some way engineered? If so, there's a few anomalies about that. Are we saying that Henri Paul knew that he was doing that? Had he been mind-controlled to do that? Did he think he would survive the crash? You know, there's anomalies that are thrown up by that theory. And yet, even if they weren't anything to do with it, and it was to do with the white fiat, we do know there is a CIA assassination technique that involves basically running people off the side of a road into a wall or into, you know, a cliff or whatever. So you can't say that's never happened because we do know it's a technique that has been used before. But you're left with a question mark, and yet you cannot look at the whole of the evidence around Diana and say that it all makes sense because very clearly it doesn't. Indeed.
We'll uh, step away again for a moment, come back and continue our conversation with Andy Thomas, the author of Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence. Back with more. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Before we get back to Andy Thomas, a quick programming note. Next week, if you're a regular Coast to Coast AM listener, you'll be familiar with the name Lex Lone Hood. He's one of Coast's fine webmasters, but he's also an accomplished writer and author. And his new book, Nightmare Land, travels at the borders of sleep, dreams, and wakefulness. He'll be here for the full two hours. And then, the following week, Marcus Allen... The publisher of Nexus Magazine will be here to discuss the lunar landing hoax. We're back with Andy Thomas. The book is Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence. We're going to get into some more specific uh, conspiracies in the second hour, but I wanted to ask you something of a slightly different nature, and that is one of the big areas of concern in this field, in this arena. It's a big tent, and that is... There's a lot of haters out there, and sometimes conspiracy gets tainted with anti-Semitism, and it's often it's sort of the big elephant in the room, and I, it's something I think we need to address. I mean, that's something I'm very vigilant about, because there are people that try to get on the radio, and they have their agendas and so forth. How do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one, and I mean, in the book Conspiracies, there's a chapter called How Far Should Conspiracies Go? Now, of course, there's an old one, very old conspiracy theory about Zionist plots to control the world. And there are people out there who believe that. And they believe in the old document, the Protocols of Zion, and so on. Now, that to me it is too simplistic. I don't believe any one group in the world is ever responsible for everything. You know, we live in a very complex world. Uh, and so that is not personally my belief. But at the same time, what I don't think is healthy is just to say, well, those people should go to prison if they believe that. Now, that doesn't really help anybody. I mean, even Noam Chomsky, who, of course, is of Jewish descent, even he said he didn't believe Holocaust deniers should go to prison. I mean, A, all it does is actually attract more attention to why they went to prison. Uh, um, but B, it doesn't, to me, that just doesn't solve the issue. Uh, I do think that at the end of the day, Anything that is believed should be dealt with fairly, but also firmly, if it's obviously wrong. But just to say you will not hear this discussed, you will not discuss this, doesn't end it. It's like we've got an issue in some areas with people that question vaccinations. Well, now that's become the ultimate taboo. Yes. Right. You can't you can't go near it. If you go near it, you're going to be deplatformed. You're going to you're not going to be heard out. It's, you know, been sort of put to the point where you're almost, you know, you're liable for murder if you say that you shouldn't vaccinate. But then, of course, that means that anything that might ever come up that might need looking at, you know, there might be mistakes made in the world of vaccination that now will never happen because you can't go near it. Is that a wise world? There's a fine balance to be struck here. And I'm not somebody that stands up and says, I know everything about everything. I mean, I don't. And I'm very clear in the book when I raise very contentious issues to say when, you know, it does look likely that this is the case or we don't know. But I think the minute you get into this world of saying, right, you're going to prison for believing that, 
you're on a rocky road. Because, I mean, if you take, say, 9-11, there are some U.S. senators, I believe, who have actually gone on record as saying that questioning 9-11 should be on the same level as questioning the Holocaust and should be made illegal. Well, I mean, if you look at the evidence around 9-11, whatever you believe about it, absolutely there are grounds to doubt it or to doubt the official story. Um, then what? So they're going to go to prison. Then what? Who's next? So anybody that questions vaccination, they're off to prison. Anyone that questions climate change, yeah, they're off to prison as well. Do you see what I mean? Yes, yes, absolutely. Where does that go? So to me, that is not a clever path to take. It's a stupid path. And it doesn't mean people won't believe it. You can shut them up, but you're creating extremism, which then doesn't have an outlet, and then starts to do more and more extreme things to try to prove its beliefs. And it doesn't, it doesn't enable the world to shine a light onto it and say, look, here's the truth of it. So that's not a solution in my view. So, yeah, it's a very, very tricky one to say to somebody, you can believe this theory and this theory and that, but you can't believe that one. But at the moment, we're we're certainly in a direction where actually, if you believe in any conspiracy theory, you're going to get vilified for it. And that's what's now been built up with the new censorship. And make no mistake, there is censorship, big time, which is now out there, which is trying to remove this completely from any online platform. And we've not even seen the the beginning of how far that's going to go yet. We're we're still in early days. Right. Well, where do you think it's headed? Is it is it going to get worse before it gets better, or do you what do you see as the the ultimate resolution of this, if any, in terms of censorship and deplatforming and clamping down on dissent and diverse opinions? One has to hope that sooner or later an innate human spirit will say, hang on a minute, this is going too far. I mean, you find if you look back through history, there have been attempts before to crush dissent by controlling information, and sooner or later it will get out there again. Um, We've enjoyed, I think, a freedom of having the Internet for so long that we took it for granted. Uh, and I think then when the fake news thing came along, we, we allowed it too quickly to be withdrawn from us again. Or almost it's happened before we've realized what's going on. And I think that the thing is, some people in the, the truth-seeking world, let's call it that, they can see what's going on. But others on the outside that wouldn't normally seek out this kind of material, they're, they're not even aware that it's vanishing. And that, again, would seem to be the hope of the authorities, is that once it's vanished... You know, in the future, people won't even know this stuff existed. Therefore, they won't look for it. Maybe. That's the hope. I think it's misconceived. I think the stuff will will come back. And one of the things that I've advocated is that those people that are concerned about, you know, some of the areas we're talking about here, they need to preserve this knowledge. Because if it's being taken down off the Internet, well, it has to be kept somewhere. Because I believe there will come a time when people will come back to wanting to know about these kinds of things. And that knowledge, that information needs to be preserved ready for it to be rediscovered but certainly at the moment no we're in a very worrying time where people are being branded purveyors of fake news when in fact all they're doing is expressing an opinion sometimes based on evidence so we're absolutely in an Orwellian agenda here 
which is trying to just take information away from people while at the same time feeding them propaganda. And we see this every day. You've only got to put the BBC on to hear that or any name any channel. You know, I'm just using that as an example. So we're being hit with propaganda and, and yeah, let's call it a kind of a fake news. And yet they've turned it around and said that anybody that questions their fake news, it's those outside that are putting the real fake news out. And of course, in the end, everybody goes mad and doesn't know what to believe. And maybe that's part of the agenda as well. Yes, yes. The, some people pinpoint the, the weaponization of the word conspiracy uh, to a period in the, the late 60s after the Warren report came out. Uh, and and the, there's been a memo cited from the CIA talking about how we have to label uh, JFK assassination researchers as conspiracy theorists. But I've also read where that's been discounted, no such memo exists. Have you looked into uh, sort of the origin of the weaponization of the word? Yes, and again, as you said there, getting to the bottom of it, as usual, is difficult. But I'm not sure how much I care about that. I mean, there's no question that the term conspiracy theorist has been, it's sort of been fostered to become a term of abuse. And a lot of people in the conspiracy research world try to avoid it like the plague. But I've always kind of taken a more balanced approach with that. Now, in the book, I give the dictionary definitions of conspiracies and what a theory is. And actually, I mean, listen. We know conspiracies exist. There's no question about that. Um, And we also know, as we've established in this interview here, you can't always get to the absolute 100% truth of something, but you can discuss it. And therefore, you need occasionally to theorize. What is wrong with that? So if that makes you, by definition, a conspiracy theorist, well, so what? And my response, if somebody says to me, well, you're just a conspiracy theorist, is yes, and have you seen the reasons why I am? (laughs) And then, of course, that is when I then indeed try to, uh, you know, show to people why there are grounds to discuss all of this. Great answer. I I have to jump in. uh, We're at the top of the hour. We'll come back and uh, continue to delve into Andy Thomas's book, the second edition, Conspiracies, the Facts, the Theories, the Evidence, back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. My name is Richard Serrett.